Well, it's my very great pleasure this evening to welcome Professor Gilles Capel. Um, Gilles is not a stranger at all to the LSE. He was here with us uh, during the session 2009-10 as the Philippe Roman uh, Chair in uh, International Affairs at the LSE Ideas uh, Center. I remember vividly that he gave an inspiring uh, series of public lectures during that uh, year that were um, thought-provoking and extremely well attended and very appropriate uh, in terms of the international context we were dealing with at that time. Um, he's come back again this evening to give us another lecture which is, uh, if you like, touches right on the issues that are concerning us all in terms of the Middle East uh, at the present uh, time, focusing on revolution and counter-revolution in the Arab world. I'll just say a little bit more about Profel, Professor Kafel's uh, background beyond his uh, former tenure of the Philip Roman Chair. Um, Professor Capel uh, has done extensive research uh, on the Middle East. He's uh, just returned from uh, Libya uh, and Tunisia. That will, of course, be informing uh, his lecture tonight. Um, before that, he'd been on visits to Egypt uh, and another trip to the Gulf. Again, I think he'll be drawing on all of this and what he's talking about uh, tonight. Uh, he's researched and published extensively um, on political Islam, uh, on the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe. Among his best-known works are uh, Beyond Terror and Martyrdom, The Future of the Middle East, um, and also my um, personal uh, favorite here, The Jihad, The Trail of Political uh, Islam. So, um, Professor Capel, I'd like to hand over to you um, for your thoughts on revolution and counter-revolution in the Arab world. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Nigel, for your very kind words. Um, uh, and uh, it's always a great pleasure to be back at the LSE. Uh, whenever I take the Eurostar, it reminds me of the two uh, uh, terms that I spent here uh, two years ago, and it was, uh, it was uh, really a fascinating period. And uh, I, I just wish uh, it, never, it never stopped, but those things happen. And I have other things to do on the other side of the channel. Um, well, uh, since, uh, since I left the LSE, uh, there were six revolutions in the Arab world. No, maybe no, no relation from cause to effect. But the, uh, and uh, the, um, we, we are facing, um, we are facing a, a major challenge in this, in this part of the world. Something which is not only uh, an Arab issue. And, um, as Nigel told you, I, I was uh, just in, uh, back from Tunisia and Libya, and um, I visited uh, Tunisia right after the elections that uh, gave a majority to the uh, Islamist uh, party, uh, Nahda, meaning Renaissance in Arabic. And uh, out of the new members of the National Assembly in, in Tunisia, uh, there are 10 MPs, or uh, members of the Assemblée Constituante, as they said, who were elected in France. And therefore, you have uh, people who are now elected officials in Tunisia, and you will have also some in Morocco, who come from the emigration uh, population in Europe. And the same will be true more and more. That is to say that uh, populations from Arab descent and from 
other descents in other Muslim countries in Europe are also part and parcel of this huge amount of change which is happening in the, in the Arab world today. And uh, when we think of those revolutions and counter-revolutions in the Arab world, we are, of course, thinking of the domestic dynamics of the, those countries, whether they be political, social, economic, cultural, and so on and so forth. But we are also have to take into account the general dynamics of the geopolitics of uh, the region, its relations with Europe, also its relations with its regional environment, and um, in the old days, that is to say, uh, when I was a student, not long ago, uh, countries like Turkey and Iran you know, had to uh, keep out of the Middle East, of Arab affairs. I mean, they were, since the end of World War I, I mean, they were, they were not allowed to mingle in those issues. Nowadays, Iran had been a player, an Arab player, for some time already, but now Turkey has become a major Arab player. And also, those revolutions are taking place as the whole world system is changing, as uh, the grip or the influence or the clout of the West, not really meaning Europe anymore, much to our despair, but meaning America, is, if not waning, at least receding, while the center of the world is moving east, where the money is. The money is in China, the money is in the oil exporting countries. Though the governments of China, the governments of Saudi Arabia and others, have neither the will really nor the capacity to deal politically with the, those new tasks they're facing. and. The Arab world, to a large extent, is is on the uh, on the fractal axis of this change in in the world, generally speaking. So, what is happening there is, uh, in a way, is is a means for us to analyze not only what is happening within the Arab system, but also a means to think of the role the Arab world is playing in the world system and also is something that gives us food for thought for the magnitude of change that we're witnessing in the world at large. Two thousand eleven comes ten years after two thousand one. And with that, I will end my lecture. Uh, thank you for attending. The, uh, you know, this is what the maths that we learn on the other side of the channel. Uh, uh, 
um, what do I mean by that? Uh, September 2001, of course, is uh, was something that played an important role in the in the Arab world. Uh, for a number of reasons you're aware of. But let me underline one that you may not have paid much attention to, or might you. The likes of Mubarak, Ben Ali, and a number of others, Gaddafi, got an extended 10 years in office with the blessing of significant element of their middle classes and definitely with the blessing of Western capitals because of the threat that Al-Qaeda terrorism posed to the world. We knew, and everybody knew, that none of them were really keen on human rights, on democracy, and so on and so forth, but the magnitude of the threat posed by Al-Qaeda, you know, allowed us to, to some extent, look the other way around. If I may sum it up in one sentence, better Ben Ali than Ben Laden. And um, the strange phenomenon that that led to was that, you know, biology, and I, have no, no expertise at all in biology. Uh, biology has its laws, so I can guess from the outside. I.e., those autocrats, those Arab autocrats, were aging, like all of us, unfortunately. And um, to an extent, they lost their grip on their societies and on their institutions. Ben Ali, who had been an astute, cruel, or whatever, autocrat, started to, you know, to age significantly. Power was more and more in the hands of the entourage of his second wife, Leila Trabulsi, and of the cronies of her family. And she was a hairdresser by training, and uh, if we may call that a training, and uh, he was a cop by training also. And um, many of my francophone friends in uh, Tunisia coming from the, you know, the well-to-do would tell me, you know, sipping uh, Calibia wine on, uh, on a balcony overlooking the Mediterranean, you know, it was hard enough uh, to have a cop, uh, you know, doing extortion. assez dur de se faire raqueter par un flic. Et par une coiffeuse, tu te rends compte? But by a hairdresser, can you imagine? I say, I feel, I, I feel your pain. I mean, it's, it's hard. And the same was true in, in Egypt with, uh, with Mubarak aging and um, the, once again, the first lady and the sons becoming more and more powerful. And uh, Libya, of course, you know. And um, to the fact, to the point that, you know, they would not make the necessary arbitrations anymore. They, uh, that would lead to the brutality of the police, useless brutality. For instance, in Alexandria, when they, uh, when they killed this young, well-educated kid who uh, used the internet, Khalid Said, uh, and when they did not know how to deal with what happened in December 
2010 in Sidi Bouzid, in a city of uh, southern Tunisia, when this young man set himself ablaze. Uh, and this was something, you know, this was an interesting issue that the, the capacity of those rulers to, to exert their uh, both repressive and political clout was diminishing. Also, as of 2006, Al-Qaeda had started to be seated in the back seat in terms of confrontation with the West. Remember the 33-day war of July 2006 between Israel and Hezbollah? Who was the hero and champion of the Arab world? Hassan Nasrallah, a Shia Lebanese, close to Iran, very anti-Sunni, radical Sunni Muslims like uh, Al-Qaeda and the, and the Salafi jihadists. And also, Al-Qaeda had hoped it would uh, take over thanks to the failures of Ameri the American invasion of Iraq and occupation of Iraq. They were convinced that they would sort of, you know, have a remake of jihad in Afghanistan with the Marines in the role of the uh, Spitznik. And um, when the U.S. started and the, uh, and the Brits and the Allied forces started to... Uh, to occupy Iraq, there was a sort of guerrilla insurgency which was waged mainly by local Sunnis with a significant uh, international radical movement uh, helped uh, by Al-Qaeda circles that brought kids from Britain, from France, from wherever uh, to Iraq to kill Americans uh, and Brits and whatever to uh, uh, to detonate uh, the, the bombs that they carried, suicide bombings and the like. But at the end of the day, Sunni radicals and Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was the big name at the time in Iraq. Those guys killed more Iraqis than they killed foreigners. Well, the Iraqis they killed were predominantly Shiite, who are the majority of the Iraqi population. And while the U.S. or the West, Western troops there, and Al-Qaeda were fighting at each other, their common nemesis, Iran, was gaining strength. And the paradox of the American occupation in Iraq, as they are leaving now, is that they delivered Iraq to not only the Iraqi Shiites, who are the majority, but to a blend of Iraqi Shiites who are very close to the Iranian establishment. Sikh um, transit, Gloria Mundi. And, um, but that meant also that Al-Qaeda had lost, that you know they, they had been unable to make use of the jihad they waged in Iraq to mobilize the Sunni masses uh, beyond their, uh, their black flag, or the banner of the prophet, as they said. So, to a large extent, 
the image of al-Qaeda as a threat became less and less significant. I mean, it was largely constructed by the media, not that it was not real. And London in 7-7-2005, and everything proved it, the contrary. But there was a discrepancy between their capacity to wage terrorism and to catch media attention on the one hand, and their capacity or their non-capacity to mobilize the masses behind what they thought they were, i.e. the vanguard of the Islamic revolution. Right? So the threat became less and less tangible. And that, to a large extent, opened the space which had been closed by the better bin Ali than bin Laden logic, which I described before. And uh, it's in that context that you had this resurgence of civil societies that dared criticize the regimes, something that they did before, but that they could not do with such significance because there was this al-Qaeda threat, right? People felt liberated to, to mobilize, to move, to, to go into action. And then you had all this uh, range of social movements and of revolutions that took place in the uh, early two th late 2010, early 2011. As I mentioned earlier on, six revolutions, more or less, took place. I mean, if we don't count uh, what happened in Oman, or if we don't count what is now happening in Kuwait, where I'm, to which I'm flying in a couple of days. And uh, six countries where the powers that be either were toppled, Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya, in that order, one where the power was semi-toppled and came back, Yemen, one where repression managed to put down the insurgency or revolution, wherever you call it, so the epitome of counter-revolution, Bahrain, and one where the upheaval is in, uh, at its thrust, Syria. The ripple effect of those uh, movements is, uh, is to be felt more and more. And uh, I dare not uh, talk about uh, Lebanon in front of uh, uh, the French ambassador, uh, His Excellency Bernard Rimier, uh, whom I, uh, to whom I say hello, hello tonight, and who was our ambassador in, in Lebanon and who knows the country very well. But the, um, uh, Lebanon is clearly in danger of uh, the ripple effect of the Syrian situation. Iraq uh, will probably suffer. Uh, the Iranian-Syrian and the Iranian-Syrian Hezbollah axis is now under threat if the Assad regime is uh, put aside and so on and so forth. Kuwait, as I mentioned, is facing social movements. Saudi Arabia has had a major transition at its head, 
with Prince Nayef becoming the de facto king after the death of uh, Prince Sultan. But Saudi Arabia also is, in a, is facing a difficult political and, and social challenge. Not to mention Algeria, where the political transition in Tunisia is setting a terrible example for the Algerian military establishment. And also the fact that armed Berbers took place in the toppling of Gaddafi in uh, Libya of course, is sending shock waves in the spinal column of uh, many uh, Algerian generals with their strong Berber or Kabyl population. Morocco has tried to um, implement a number of reforms, political reforms, in order to have the middle classes have their say in political decisions to try to separate what had made the success of the Tunisian revolution, i.e. the coalescence of different social classes into a revolutionary movement. So we, haven't, we have only seen the, the beginning of it. It's not over at all. It's not over because it's going to spread and also because those revolutions have developed and we are now to some extent We've reached stage two after the what people call the Arab Spring for uh, lack of a better expression and because they thought that the metaphor, the power of the metaphor or the Prague Spring would be, you know, would allow us to think about it. This is a sort of uh, calamity of Arab studies that we always have to borrow metaphors to other systems of thinking. Like when I was... Uh, Young, very long ago, we, uh, when the first, what I would call the Islamist movement, would rise, people in France would call them antigrist, and in uh, the English-speaking world, were fundamentalists, uh, using a category and an image that was taken from the right-wingers in the Catholic Church on the one hand and the Bible Belt uh, people on the other, which was only partially significant because it did not cover the scope of the Islamist movements, which are far wider in terms of their social outreach and, um, and revolutionary dimension than the, fund the fundies or the antigrist, of course. And the same is true for the, the Arab Spring, because now, you know, after the press, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, lauded the Arab Spring in the... Uh, in, during the spring, then now I don't know what's it, on this side of the channel. But in France, it's there's it's all about the Islamist autumn or the Islamist fall. Après le printemps arabe, l'automne islamiste, and what about winter? And um, so anyway, things are changing. The young revolutionaries who were um, ahead of everyone in Place Tahrir in Tahrir Square in Cairo have now been marginalized. Uh, by uh, Muslim brothers and Salafists. Nahda won in Tunisia. And uh, in Libya, there's a fear competition between uh, Islamic thawar, as they say, revolutionaries coming from this or that city and others who are far more secular. So 
how can we sort of decipher all that? And I'll, um, in the 18 minutes that uh, Nigel has uh, still has for me, I will try to sort of compare the different revolutions briefly to show you that even though they share a number of things, much of it what I already mentioned, they nevertheless uh, have different features. And out of that comparison, we'll try to not predict anything because academics usually do not predict anything for not for fear of losing their jobs, they are tenured usually, but they, for fear of being ridiculous, uh, that um, the future. Let's start with uh, Tunisia. Originally, the revolution in Tunisia started with what was not a revolution, i.e. but a sort of poor people's social movement after Mohamed Bouazizi, who was a street vendor in the city of Sidi Bouzid, a deprived area of southern Tunisia, set himself ablaze. And this was the sort of symbol of the Arab revolt, something which uh, looked um, very significant, which many people interpreted as uh, the sign that the poor, that the downtrodden, uh, had suddenly raised their head up and said, you know, we are enough with this uh, contempt, enough with the fact that we are marginalized, we, we want to live, we want dignity, we want karama. We want it now becomes clear that things were not that clear, that uh, it was not such an issue of, you know, of the poor versus the rich. It also had to do with a very strong tribal competition in this area of southern Tunisia. And as a matter of fact, for those of you who had followed the, the elections in Tunisia, um, one uh, person originating from Sidi Bouzid, the very area uh, with a very strong tribal base, scored a tremendous amount of seats in the, in the, in the, uh, in the elections and came second to Nahda. And uh, the guy actually has not set foot in uh, Tunisia for, a long, for, a long, for 20 years. He operates out of London where everything evil happens, as you know, or so we think. And uh, by the name of uh, Hashemi Hamdi, and uh, turned down my request for an interview this afternoon, actually, so sees that he's real evil, and um, has this quote-unquote independent TV channel, Al Mustaqilla, it means the independent in Arabic, he was a former Nahda person, then uh, get close to Ben Ali, and is very tribal in his uh, in his claims. In his um, so, the 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 policewoman who slapped Bouazizi, the street vendor, was his first cousin, and you know, it's all this Arab revolution. The more we scratch the surface, the more complicated it becomes, but it does not matter because even if a social fact is built on a rumor and if the rumor becomes a social fact then you have to take the rumor seriously which does not preclude the fact that we social scientists try to understand why it led to something different that many people believed. Anyway, so 
then you had this movement which was an upheaval of the, of the marginalized part of Tunisia. It did not reach out until mid-January to the uh, educated middle class of the coastal cities. Tunis, uh, Sous, Monastir, the Sahel, the, the areas from which the, the, the Tunisian establishment um, stems from. By mid-January, those people said, as my friends uh, sipping a glass on the balcony, which I mentioned earlier on, okay, why don't we pass an alliance? with those guys in Sidi Bouzid with which we don't want to have anything to do in our you know, daily dwellings because they're really low class. But why don't we pass an alliance with them so that we topple the, the despot and the, the, the husband or the hairdresser? And um, in Tunisia, there was a very strange phenomenon. The, the police was everything, but the army was marginalized. And I remember being invited to lecture in Tunisia by the army, you know, which is not the place where you think you could express ideas usually. On the contrary, in Tunisia, in the barracks, this was where you could speak. Not a word in the universities or in the press, which are under closed police supervision. But the military had, uh, the officer corps had managed to sort of keep their thing to themselves. And um, the officer corps is a sort, sort of representative of the of the Tunisian bourgeoisie or middle classes, and decided with their opposite numbers in society, and this coalition of the young, urban, or rural poor on the one hand, and the, uh, the urban bourgeoisie on the other, created this sort of uh, revolutionary alliance that was strong enough, helped by the officer corp and the fact that the army refused to help the police in uh, fighting the demonstrators, created the alliance that was strong enough to oust Ben Ali and send him packing to Saudi Arabia. Um, this was, you know, a sort of Marxian revolution. I mean, if you read the uh, if you think of Karl Marx's book on uh, uh, 1848, you know, where he describes this, what he calls the moment of enthusiasm, when the workers of the outskirts of Paris, or it was not the outskirts at the time, the Faubourg, the East End, if you want, and, uh, and uh, the, the journalists and the others uh, uh, joined forces and oust the ruling regime in a moment of enthusiasm because they forget their their best their own vested interests and what he calls enthusiasm allows them to overcome them and to join forces to get rid of the of the of the incumbents this was the the tunisian revolution and at the time one of the big issues was is the educated middle class or the westernized middle class going to be able to lead the transition process. Originally it looked like it because you know in revolutions usually you have 
this dual phenomenon that the Ancien Régime is falling apart, but you still have a provisional government or something which comes out of the remnants of the Ancien Régime, which is, you know, purified day after day. And on the other hand, you have Soviets or uh, Comité or Comité de Salut Public, tracing back to the French Revolution, or Comité, as they said, in, uh, in Iran or Soviets, which create a counterpower, and then the Soviets come over and topple it. In Tunisia, it did not happen because uh, there was a sort of intermediary structure that was created, which was called the high haute uh, instance, I would say that, the high uh, corp or the high institution for the preservation of the revolution. Haute instance pour la sauvegarde des acquis de la revolution. And this became the sort of governing body so that there were no radical Soviet-like groups that managed to emerge. And that allowed Tunisia to organize a sort of orderly, orderly sorry, uh, democratic process and elections, which led, uh, three weeks ago, to the victory of Nahda, of the Islamists for a number of reasons, because they, they were perceived by the populations as the one, the population, as the ones who were able to carry the strongest change. And also because they were the ones who had endured the harshest repression under Ben Ali. So they sort of benefited from the victim status, even though a number of secularists had been also victimized, tortured, arrested, but the Islamists suffered most. And um, to some extent, like the, the French communists after World War II, when they were called the, the party of the fusillated, or the people who were shot down. And they were the party of the tortured, or the people who had undergone repression. But they don't have absolute majority. Uh, they have 40% of the, of the seats. They have to pass coalition with others. And they have to engage in two uh, negotiations. They have, if I may say so, for Islamists to put a lot of water in their wine or in their fig alcohol, as, is, uh, as they do in sip, like to sip in Tunisia, Bukha. And um, so, as of now, uh, the political field in, in Tunisia is, is still very open. I met with, uh, we can discuss that later, I met with uh, most of the, of the Islamist leaders a couple of weeks ago, and uh, this was the message they conveyed to me. Well, maybe because uh, they saw me as a French person, but the, uh, that's what they said. It's not something some others would have said 10 years back, right? Islamic movements or Islamists have uh, had to, to go through this period of jihadi terrorism and they also have looked at the, at the Turkish example, thinking that at the end of the day, the, the Turks made it. And that the Turks, the AKP and Erdogan, whose photograph I see in front of me, who gave a lecture here probably, uh, Erdogan, the Turkish prime minister, was, was able to, to mobilize the masses, to cope with the West, and um, and actually, uh, Hanushi, the, the the mentor of the Tunisian Nahda party, is praised tremendously in uh, in in Turkey and in Qatar. 
So that's for Tunisia. I mean, a few, a few ideas about this kind of revolution. Egypt was quite different. In Egypt, and you know, we're talking about a country which is uh, six or seven times bigger than the other. Uh, the problems are uh, of a magnitude which is far superior to Tunisia. Uh, cronyism was developed to an extent which uh, was fathomless. And there was no revolutionary process comparable to the Tunisian one with the coalescence of different social classes, right? There was this strange phenomenon which was the sort of the, the scenery or the theater, the political theater, if you wish, of uh, Tahrir Square. Everybody would come on the square. Meidan Tahrir means arena or circus, if you wish, because it was the place where you would parade the horses in the back in the past. And it would create the feeling that there was a mass of people. And actually, uh, TV crews and pho photographers and, uh, and the like would go on the balconies of the... Uh, of the buildings uh, surrounding the square and uh, where I spent quite a lot of time myself where you had a, a view, you had pictures, you, had, you, could, uh, you could post your, your pictures on YouTube, on, uh, on Dailymotion, uh, on the internet, send it to CNN or what have you, Al Jazeera, and, uh, and then create the impression that there was a, mobiliz a mobilization that was, you know, crossing the whole of Egyptian society. Whereas because in Egypt there are a lot of people, I mean, if you see, uh, you, you, can, you can bring 100,000, it's no problem, but it's, it's a drop of water in the 80 plus million Egyptians, right? Nevertheless, it creates a strong image of mass participation, sorry. And uh, the Tahrir Square phenomenon, uh, you know, many people said it was a, a Twitter phenomenon, a Facebook phenomenon, what have you, was something that was managed, that was led by uh, uh, Western-educated, uh, radical, pro-democracy uh, youngsters. It did not really reach out to the mass of the urban poor as opposed to Tunisia, where it started among the ranks of the urban poor, right? And uh, even though there was enthusiasm, interest in a wide array of circles in Egypt, people would not participate significantly. And they really participated after Mubarak made his speech where he said, I'm staying. Everybody thought that he'd say, well, say, would, would say I'm, I'm leaving. And then you had a mass participation. Mubarak was ousted, but he was ousted by his peers, by the, by the military top brass that has run the shots in Egypt since 1952, that has put Nasser on the, the stage, replaced him with... Uh, Sadat then replaced Sadat with Mubarak. And to a large extent, as opposed to what happened in Tunisia, uh, there is no institutionalized form of transition to the post-Mubarak regime, which is managed by a body which emerges from the, 
from the revolutionaries or from a power system which is distinct from the incumbent leadership, right? The army is still in charge. The supreme, uh, what's in English, SCAF, supreme command of armed forces, right? And uh, and uh, I just um, attended a conference a couple of days ago in Paris with the famous Egyptian writer Ala El Aswani, the uh, author of the uh, Yaqubian Palace, or whatever it's called in English, and who was a very uh, prominent activist in those days. And uh, the theme of his talk was uh, the revolution is in danger because we fear that we are being deprived of our revolution. Not only, and he's a secularist, not only because Muslim brothers and Salafists are gaining ground, but also because the military is still in charge. The military is organizing the elections. The military has postponed the election of a new president after uh, a national assembly is elected where they think they will be able to manipulate the votes so that the president will be weak because they cannot have a military as a president this time. Be, there, there would be too much resentment, but they, they will have a, a weak civilian with a strong military vice president. Right. So there is this feeling that in a way there was something that looked like a revolution in Egypt, but it's, uh, it is losing its revolutionary dynamics now. Okay? And we'll get back to the uh, Islamic dimension afterwards in the Q&A session. Libya. Libya was a different, uh, different issue. I mean, there would have been no... I mean, Gaddafi would, had not been toppled. Hadn't we had an entente cordiale Finally, when the Brits and the French do something together, it works. Uh, and uh, I remember in, uh, I was in Tripoli, uh, I mean, I just came back, but I was there also a month ago, and uh, one uh, minister from Benghazi, yeah, we were with a delegation of French people, and uh, in a meeting stood up and said, you know, he recounted the 19th of March. He was in um, he was in Benghazi. The the revolutionary or the makeshift fighters of Benghazi had lost to the well trained and equipped Gaddafi forces, and the columns of tanks, of uh, SUVs, and whatever, of mercenaries of Gaddafi army, were dashing to Benghazi. The city was to be looted, and you know he looked at it, he was on the top of his building, he saw the column of smoke in the distance uh, in the horizon and he, he knew that it would be terrible and suddenly something came from the sky, not Allah this time but the, the French uh, planes, Cocorico and, um, and in a matter of minutes there was no more uh, uh, armed column and uh, it was very moving, of course, for us, because for, you know, for us, we were popular in, in one Arab country. It's not going to last, but let's... And uh, the, um, it was interesting because even though, you know, they don't say it, I mean, it's interesting that 
without foreign intervention, military, from the skies, there would have been no toppling of the Qazafi regime. Okay. But most of it was done. I mean, uh, it was not sufficient, but it was necessary um, by the revolutionaries. I mean, and it's, uh, it's uh, I had been in Libya before and after. Uh, it was a sort of most brainwashed country, uh, Arab country I had ever seen. You know, and I studied Arabic in Syria under Hafez al-Assad and talking about brainwashing, I mean, I know what, I, what I'm talking about. Uh, this was worse than you could imagine. Anyone can imag could imagine. I mean, everybody was afraid of everything. The, anyone who had thought anything had left, and um, and suddenly you go in a country which is completely different. I mean, uh, there is music everywhere. There, are, uh, and uh, everybody everybody's talking. Where had all those people been there before? They, they talk and they, they, they most of them speak no other language than Arabic because. Uh, Foreign languages were uh, were forbidden, so it's a paradise for Arabists because they we are the only ones who understand what they say, and the um, and the the cities are full of young revolutionaries with their uh, their jeeps and their SUVs and their arms uh, painted uh, with a spray paint with the name of the country or the village or the area or the tribe they come from. And for those of you who are familiar with um, Arab history or Arab literature, it looks like you're reading books by Ibn Khaldun. You know, uh, if you, for those of you who remember, who know, remember, Ibn Khaldun was studied outside Arabist circles also, where he has this analysis of the evolution of history in the in North Africa and says that you know the the cities weaken and then suddenly. The tribes from outside, Arabs and Berbers, invade the city, topple the powers that be. They camp in the city with their tent in their tents until they finally get into the palaces, and then a new, a few generations later, other Arabs and Berbers will come and vice versa. Sort of cycle. I mean, it's more complicated than that, of course. But what is fascinating in Tripoli now is full of of uh, people in tents coming from the villages, camping there, and saying that they are not going to leave before they see what they expect being materialized in terms of revolution, as opposed to Egypt, if you want, right? And, uh, well, there are many different visions. I mean, some say that it's going to be the Islamic State. Others say that they are waiting for, they want a democratic state, that they are going to fight until the last drip of their blood so that there will be no Islamic State in, in uh, Libya. So things are, for the time, really open. I was amazed the other day because I was, uh, there was a, a sort of a campus, if we may call it a campus, in, uh, in Tripoli called Dawa Islamia, which means uh, Islamic propaganda which was a set of buildings that Qazafi had created so that he would bring um, mainly Africans uh, who would be trained or brainwashed into a sort of Qazafi uh, view of Islam that he would export to um, African countries, you know, to, uh, for influence. And um, uh, eight years ago I had been asked to give a lecture in that place. It was one of the most terrible uh, uh, 
souvenirs I had of ever giving a lecture to any place. And um, the doors, and it was heavily guarded. Now the doors are smashed open, and uh, there was a public, uh, sort of well-trimmed garden in the middle. In the garden, which was the center of the Kazafi propaganda machine, uh, you have the, the Berbers and the Arabs under their tents with their Kalashnikov and their guns, and they say, we're not going to move before democ democracy is implemented in, uh, in Libya, right? So we still have a very volatile situation where it is still difficult to know whether the cleavages take place between Berbers and Arabs, between Democrats or liberals and uh, Islamists, between East and West, between tribes and non-tribes. And it's, it's a very open situation. So the, the three countries where the, the regimes have been toppled are, uh, have things in common, have, but they have also very different issues. Now, very briefly, because Nigel is frowning at me, the three places where it did not work. Uh, Bahrain, which may be the, the simplest thing to, to tell. Bahrain is a small island uh, where the majority of population is Shia. It is ruled by a Sunni family. And it was a country where there was a rather significant uh, civil society life, which is rare in the Gulf, mostly in Kuwait and Bahrain. But civil society, I mean, professionals and like, there is no more oil in Bahrain, and uh, people have to work to make a living. Uh, and you have a number of professionals. Most of our best students at Sciences Po, at the time when Sciences Po was interested in the Middle East, uh, were from Bahrain and Yemen, actually, because, you know, they had no oil, so they had to, they had to work, and, and they worked. Uh, the upheaval against the Sunni monarchy, which was mainly grounded in Shia uh, backgrounds, nevertheless used a sort of national and democratic parlance at first, did not put in the foreword Shia uh, slogans. Nevertheless, uh, the, um, after a while, and probably with the help of some elements in the royal family, Shia extremists who had been maintained outside of the country were allowed to come back and were immediately uh, perceived as stooges for uh, Ahmadinejad, something which uh, said, uh, sent uh, uh, panic shockwaves in Saudi Arabia, in, uh, in the Emirates, in the other uh, uh, countries of the peninsula. And then, on I think the 13th of March, I remember it was a Monday, I was in Jerusalem that day, there was the first time ever when, you know, there's a big bridge between Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, when, the Saudi, when Saudi Arabia invaded Bahrain, invaded Bahrain on a Monday. For the anecdote, they usually invade Bahrain on Wednesday nights, which is when there's uh, the beginning of the weekend, and uh, the bridge, which uh, which official name is the Bridge of Friendship, Jess uh, Mahabba, is uh, better known as Jesser Johnny Walker, which is uh, uh, which is what we go and do. So, 
they would not do it on a, on, a, on Wednesday because you, you can't move on a Wednesday on this bridge. So um, they invaded Bahrain on a, on a Monday night, and uh, and the whole uh, the whole uh, movement was 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 crushed. With the consequence that Bahrain is now non-functional because the whole fabric of the um, civil society, professionals, MDs, uh, uh, lawyers, uh, what have you, uh, are in jail or panic-stricken or fear fearful for their lives. And you have a, a, a country which was, uh, even though, you know, there were difficulties, political difficulties, but nevertheless, where you had a rather thriving semi-democratic system, which has been totally uh, put under an iron lid, for fear that uh, Iran would use Bahrain as its Trojan horse into the Sunni and oil-exporting Gulf system of the Arabian Peninsula. And as much as we in the West uh, could uh, not mince our words to say how bad Mubarak, how bad Ben Ali, and how bad Gaddafi were, well, uh, when Bahrain was the matter, not many people insisted on the harshness of the repression because Bahrain is at the heart of the oil exporting system of the Gulf. And had the Iranians been able to set a foot in Bahrain, then the barrel prices would have skyrocketed, and no one is going to take that. So, as I mentioned earlier on, this issue of Arab revolutions also is very contingent to the way the Arab system is linked, is articulated, with different elements of the world system, including the energy market. Briefly, because now Nigel wants to hit, uh, not to eat, I know the difference, even though I'm a frog, and uh, the uh, Yemen. Yemen, to some extent, is a blend between Libya and Egypt, if, if I may risk this, uh, this image or this comparison. It's a very tribal country. Uh, with a very strong tribal dimension, but it's also a country with big cities like Sana'a or Taiz with an urban culture which traces back to 5,000 years actually. And uh, so there were genuine movements for democracy, as was the case in Bahrain actually, that mimicked to a large extent what they saw in Cairo, what they saw in Tunis and I which was carried over and broadcasted over and over, mainly by Al Jazeera, which played a very important role in the spreading of the, of the slogans, and particularly of one slogan which was painted everywhere, which in Arabic uh, runs like, Ashab yurid eskat al-Nizam, the people wants the downfall of the regime. And the Syrian upheaval started when teenage kids were called painting, uh, spray painting that slogan on a, on a wall in the southern city of Dara, and they were abducted by the secret police, and then their corpses, their mutilated corpses, were returned to their families a few days after. 
there again in a tribal environment when the issue of honor was was uh, was of significant importance and which led to tremendous retaliation and um, so in Yemen um, just like Bahrain to some extent because we're dealing with the Arabian Peninsula even though there is no not very little there is oil but not much in in Yemen the big threat is that Yemen with its 25 to 30 million inhabitants which is more inhabitants than Saudi Arabia will be in such a state of turmoil then that turmoil would cross over into Saudi Arabia would step over into Saudi Arabia and this is of course something which no one wants hence the Saudis have tried to play a major role they have brought uh, Ali Saleh in uh, Saudi Arabia after he was wounded and history does not say whether he shared the same uh, retirement uh, house for um, failed uh, Arab dictators with Ben Ali and uh, waiting for another uh, room for Assad or whoever but the uh, but he came back he came back also showing that the Saudi system does not entirely control the balance of power in Yemen uh, which is for the time being very uncertain and yesterday Ali Saleh said I'm gonna leave in 90 days but he has already said that in the past and no one believes him Yemen is now uh, to a large extent plunged into deep chaos uh, in the south of Yemen some al-Qaeda groups and as you know Bin Laden originally Bin Laden's family was from Hadramaut from the south have controlled have managed to control some cities and uh, we're in an area which is not it's oil as of their pro its proximity with Saudi Arabia it's also world communications because we're on, we're on the Gulf of Aden we have the Somali pirates right on the other hand and so we have a major zone of uncertainty which can block um, ship lines and as you as you know uh, the Brits have now allowed uh, armed guards on commercial boats, something with the French have not yet dared do, but we may do it in the future. I don't know. Last, but by no means least, but I will be brief, uh, Syria. Um, you're well aware of what happens in Syria because it makes the headlines every day. Let me just try not to um, come back with the with the facts but to give you a few hints some which may you may take as anecdotes but which are not anecdotal I think and uh, 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 others which are linked to the local situation the fact that you know in the Middle East we could say that we have three zones or in the Arab world three zones zone A North Africa where the three incumbents were toppled where domestic stakes are actually more important than world or regional stakes uh, Tunisia and Libya in particular Egypt a little less uh, are not linked to major world problems Egypt is linked with the Israeli issue but uh, not as much as Syria and Lebanon if you wish and so you know those revolutions took, could take place zone B 
the Arabian Peninsula, be like Bahrain or others, are extremely sensitive. And anything that would take place there would have consequences and uh, would uh, compel all of you to use those uh, Barclay Bank uh, rental bikes to come to work because uh, you could not afford uh, fuel anymore. Zone C, the Levant, Lebanon, Syria, uh, Iraq, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, is where Syria stands in the middle, is characterized by, by two salient dimensions. A, the presence of Israel, which is a major issue, uh, and B, the fact that those most of those societies, I mean, particularly Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, are divided up into sectarian groups, denominations, ethnic, ethnic groups, nations, Arabs, Kurds, Sunnis, Shias, uh, Christians, Alawis, uh, Maronites, Druze, what have you, Ismailis. And Syria is between the Lebanese hammer and the uh, Iraqi anvil, i.e. civil war in Syria may be the consequence of strife, the present strife, as was the case in Lebanon or as was the case in Iraq. And that, and I will end with that, and we can then discuss all those things in the Q&A session if you want, but there is one reason probably why, as of today, there are some hints that things are changing, but as of today, and as opposed to what we saw in uh, Egypt and, and in Tunisia, more than everywhere else, the urban middle classes of Damascus and Aleppo have not significantly put their thrust with the revolutionaries or with the anti-Assad people. Among other things, because they fear that if the regime falls, it will lead to a situation that is comparable, that will be comparable to what happened in, in Lebanon and, uh, and Iraq. And that, after all, even though those uh, urban middle classes are predominantly Sunni, in Aleppo and Damascus, they would be the first victims of the mobs of revolutionaries. And uh, as long as there is no clear alternative to the Assad regime, they are still hesitant. Also, think of the role of the army in Egypt and Tunisia. The army in Tunisia in particular is representative of you know, the whole society, to some extent, of the middle classes, irrespective of differences of, of origin or what have you. In Egypt, it's also to a large extent representative of the, of the, the whole uh, Egyptian state system. In Syria, there are two armies. The, uh, there's the downtrodden army, uh, the Sunnis who were sent to make some money out of uh, of Lebanon uh, at the checkpoints and what have you and um, and uh, I think Ambassador Emir can testify that when in uh, 
when they were compelled to leave Lebanon, I mean, the, the, the trucks of the Syrian army would, uh, would uh, be broken on the middle of the road. Nothing worked. And there is another army, which is the Alawi army, the one that belongs to the sect of the president, which is extremely well equipped, which has munitions, which has helicopters, which has uh, what have you, tanks. And those guys fight with their back on the wall. I mean, they know that, uh, or they fear that uh, if there is, um, if the regime is toppled, they're going to have a harsh time. And I just read in the Herald Trib this morning in the Eurostar that uh, uh, dissidents from the army, I mean mainly Sunnis, have started killing military. And this translates into Sunnis have started killing Alawis as of now. And this is, of course, a very dangerous development for the Syrian uh, movement because uh, that means that uh, if there is no possibility for Alawis to be part of the future of Syria, I mean, we're going to go into uh, a bloodbath. Uh, something which is, you know, the embers are being fanned by the sort of not so um, skillful uh, interventions of the of the Turks in the matter, and of some other players. And uh, there we have a situation which is quite different from the others, but uh, uh, which is difficult to predict. Uh, but where the, you know, the Iraq scenario in terms of civil war, the Lebanon scenario is not far from um, from the possibilities for the future. So Nigel, I swear I stop. Thank you for your patience, but as they say in Arabic, sabr jamil or gemil in Egypt. And uh, so I'm now at your disposal for uh, the torture of the Q&A session. Thank you. Gilles, thanks for that uh, remarkable fine-grained tour de force around the region. Um, I'd like to give as many people as possible the opportunity to ask questions, so what I'll do is group them, I think, in threes. So if you can put your hand up and wait till you get the microphone then. So one at the back there, and then another one in the back over the middle there, and a gentleman down the middle here at the front. Side so we'll have all the questions, and we'll have Gilles uh, to uh, respond. Um, my name is uh, Khalfi. Where are you? Oh, sorry, I didn't see you. Sorry? No, I, I did not see you. I thought someone else. Okay, so please go ahead. Yeah. Right. My name is Mr. Uh, Khalfi. I'm a student at Westminster University. I haven't got really a question, but I've got a couple of comments. If you oh. allow me to speak for two, three minutes. No, no, sorry, not two, three. Just a question, huh? please. We've got hardly any time. Just a short I know. question. Of course, why do you have to keep, uh, I believe the politicians should stop actually uh, using ridiculous language like Arab words, Muslim words. These will actually... Words or world? Is world. Oh, with an L, okay, yeah. Yeah, I think I pronounced it correctly. So, looking, if you look at these countries like North Africa, mm -hmm. um, you cannot have democracy in those countries if we deny our heritage, our history. 
Uh, it seems to me that, that by calling us the Arab words by the Western society, it makes us inferior. Because looking at these countries, our heritage is actually beyond the Arab words. Where we had all these great kings and queens in North Africa, they brought civilization to Western society. And you know it. But no, there's no mention whatsoever. All the time, Arab okay, words, so Muslim we, words. That's fine. Can we okay. take I don't have to next? go... The next question, because no, no, we have thanks. more time for statements. Just a short question, please. There was another yeah. question over here, and then there was one down in the middle. Uh, it's going to be a terrible question, because Hassan was my student. <laughs> and he's from Bahrain. He was my student in Sciences Po. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you very much for the very interesting uh, talk. Um, my question is, uh, the unholy uh, uh, Saudi-US-Israel-Bahraini alliance that is now closing in on Iran. We've heard talks about Iranian plot to assassinate Saudi ambassador, foiled Iranian plot in Bahrain, mm -hmm. and, 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 and uh, the, the, the IAEA uh, uh, report on Iran and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, do you read uh, this uh, dynamic within the dynamics of the Arab Spring, or do you think that these are uh, issues that are structural to the region? Okay. Uh, I thought that Very good question. Former student. Thank you. My name is Matthew Makowski from King's College London. Uh, I've got a question about a country that we haven't really talked much about. Um, Qatar was the first country to Qatar. Yeah, yeah, Qatar was the first country to acknowledge the NTC. Uh, it's claimed that it had over 100 military personnel at any one time in Libya on the ground. Um, Al Jazeera played an instrumental, if not even um, an instigatory, uh, role in the Tahrir movement. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just, and, and now Prime Minister of Qatar is obviously at the, at the front lines of, uh, of isolating Syria. Uh, so my question is, uh, how would you assess Qatar's involvement in the Arab revolts, and how would you see, if you do see, uh, Qatar's uh, increasing role in regional politics? Thank you very much. Uh, I'll be brief. Um, it's but uh, each, of the, at least the, the last two questions would need another lecture of three hours. Uh, don't look at me like that. <laughs> and um, uh, I'll start with uh, with Qatar. Um, no, th th there can't be one hundred thousand uh, Qatari personnel because then we have the population of Qatar would be in Libya. Uh, the uh, the um, no, th there is uh, there is a lot of money of Qatari money in Libya. In Tunisia, also the the Emir of Qatar uh, was invited by Hanoushi uh, to the opening session of the new assembly. It looks like he's hesitant now. He wants Sarkozy to join, so I have not seen uh, any answer as of now. But the um, uh, the Qatar is um, is playing on two levels, both on a sort of intra-Sunni. Uh, feel Qatar, I hinted at that, or was it in the interview before me, not I mentioned that here, um, is trying to be, to play the mentor of what he calls the uh, moderate Islamist movements, what is known in Arabic as Wasatiya, and um, exponents of which are, uh, you know, the likes of uh, Rashid Ghannouchi, or the Nahada uh, Tunisian movement, uh, Sheikh Yusuf al-Qardawi, the Egyptian uh, preacher, who's uh, one of the anchors of the Al Jazeera religious program, al Sharia al-Hayat, on Sunday mornings, 
or the likes of the, my predecessor at this pulpit, uh, the Swiss uh, born and educated Tarek Ramadan, who's part and parcel of the, of the Qatar system of power with the Qatar funded uh, chair uh, at Oxford. And the Arab world is just like Oxford University. It's divided between Saudi Arabia and Qatar in terms of funding, if you wish, right? Mm. Uh, and then facing Qatar, you have, um, uh, you have Saudi Arabia, which is very worried by the developments of uh, Muslim brothers and which is backing uh, groups which are called Salafis, which are apolitical to a large extent or anti-change, uh, which are extremely strong in Egypt, for instance. And both in Tunisia and in Egypt and also in Libya, you, within Islamic movements which are now becoming so prominent, you have two, two factions. One which is pro, which is backed by Qatar and Turkey to a large extent, the Muslim brothers and the others, and, uh, and the Saudis which are looking elsewhere. And um, uh, so there, there is competition at that level. Which uh, leads us to uh, Hassan's uh, question. Uh, no, I believe that uh, Iran uh, originally, you know, when there were those movements, explained that uh, this was just a remake of the Iranian revolution, that it would end as an Islamic revolution, and so on and so on. Uh, what they now fear is uh, what may uh, happen in Syria. Losing Syria will be very detrimental to the, uh, where is Hassan? Oh, here. Uh, is, will be very detrimental to, uh, the, uh, to Iranian interests in the Middle East. I mean, Iran uh, is a Gulf country, as you know, even though you call it the Arabian Gulf and they call it the Persian Gulf, but uh, the French being neutral will call it the Gulf. Uh, the uh, or cowards, as you wish, the um, um, and because Iran was being cornered in the Gulf, it extended its hand on the other playing field of the Middle East, i.e., the Levant, and thanks to Hezbollah and via. Syria as a corridor for weapon deliveries, training, and so on and so forth, it played an important role on the Israeli-Arab confrontation, hence the 2006 33-day war, which I hinted at earlier on. Now, if uh, Iran is cut, and if the Bashar regime, uh, the, the Bashar uh, al-Assad regime falls, then uh, will uh, or is unable to deliver. I mean, Hezbollah is in dire straits. And therefore, the whole system of power of Iran is in the Middle East is significantly weakened. And um, plus, the domestic situation in Iran does not seem to be great. There is a major pro problem of governance today. Uh, Ahmadinejad's brother-in-law is in jail for something like, you know, traffic violation or whatever, I mean, any pretext. I mean, the fact, is, the important fact is that his brother-in-law is in jail, meaning that, you know, uh, there are signs that his power is, is threatened. And uh, therefore, um, the uh, IAEA report, which you mentioned, I mean, I believe that a number of countries in the Arabian Peninsula, Sunni countries, believe that time is ripe now 
for an offensive against Iran. Not necessarily that we'll have a joint uh, Israeli-Saudi uh, operation, just like the British-French operation. I mean, it may not be as blatant, if I may say so. But um, I believe that the, definitely the Islamic Republic of Iran is now uh, in the collimateur, as we say in French. No? Uh, as far as the, the grandeur of the, of the Arab world, okay, I have nothing against that. I don't see to what extent the fact that I used the uh, the, the, I mentioned the Arab world. Why is it disparaging? This is uh, something that gets out of my mind. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an Arabist, so therefore I should disparage myself. Mm. Nigel. Thanks, Phil. We'll take some more questions. Uh, a couple down the front here, and I'd like to one here, one here, and I'd like to get somebody up. Anybody up on the balcony? No? Yes? There's uh, one there at the front of the balcony as well. So one here. Down there, and one up there, and balcony. Yes. Hello. You mentioned. Um, Where are you? Over here. Oh, sorry. You mentioned Hezbollah being in dire straits. Um, could you please tell us what role, if any, Hezbollah is currently playing in the in Syria? the revolt? What what can you tell us? What role, if any, Hezbollah is currently playing in the revolts going on in Syria, and also on on the issue of Libya. Um, what, what is the position or chance of the Islamic fighting group claiming political power in, in Libya right now, particularly uh, or in light of um, Abdul Hakim Belhaj being appointed the um, military commander Tripoli, in, yeah. in Tripoli? Okay. 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 okay, and then there was a question here. Sidney you have uh, expressed the various divisions between tribal and so on. Where, what are we going to see what happened in Iraq and Libya with the division between people? Uh, are we going to see as it's continuing or can we not see a unification like De Gaulle did after in 45? bringing all the faction together. Is this going to be difficult in Libya and Iraq and anywhere else? Okay, and then the final one was up there in the balcony. Yeah, I would like to ask about... The, the microphone. Uh, uh, I'd Where like to you? ask, oh, please, hi. about what you see the future of minorities in, in the, those three zones, some of which have been here, are there, have been there for nearly 2,000 years, if not more. They predate the Arab invasion, Copts in Egypt, Assyrians in Iraq, uh, Jews in Gerba, for example, and so on. What, what future do you okay. see? Okay. Okay. Thanks for that. Uh, well, as far as uh, Assyrians in uh, Iraq, they just did not resist the American occupation. And uh, after the occupation, I mean, most of the Iraqi Christians have fled to Detroit, which is now the biggest uh, Iraqi Christian city in the world. Um, uh, in terms of Egypt, I think it's quite different. And you, you may have seen that uh, the, the military establishment decided that they could, uh, they could use brutality and violence against a copt a Coptic demonstration in Maspero Square uh, a couple of months ago without fear of retaliation and that they would flatter Salafist feelings which are very strongly anti-Christian. 
I spent some time in Egypt in the Upper Valley in April uh, after the revolution, and I, I was struck. I mean, I went to Mass a lot, not that I'm a devout Christian at all, but I'm a non-believer. But I, I went to, to Mass a lot, and I was impressed at the the vitality, the determination of um, of Upper Egypt Copts, uh, who were who had been described as subsumed, as, uh, you know, uh, fearful of everything over the last uh, decades, and who have become, if I may say so, maronitized now, uh, while some of the maronites have been coptized, if I may say so. Uh, what I mean by that, at the time, uh, cops, not copts, cops, policemen, in Egypt had all um, gone astray. They had sold their uniforms uh, to... Um, uh, to to make uh, clothes or whatever, and uh, and they had sold their weapons. Their weapons were massively bought by by Christians, who considered that there was no state to defend them anymore. And uh, when Salafis would come and to to torch the churches, they would be met by cops with uh, machine guns who would uh, who would uh, repel them. So in Egypt, I believe that there's. A, there's a, there's a feeling that the, the seven or eight million strong Copt community, Coptic community, will uh, will not let itself be um, be marginalized. I mean, they, even though they're a minority, they're they're too big a group to just to swallow like the poor uh, Iraqi Christians. Um, and but nevertheless, the those revolutions, I mean, you know, in Egypt, I mean, I heard Alal Aswani the other day and a few others who say that, you know, the issue is not to be Christian or Muslim, the issue is to be a Democrat and so on and so forth. This, of course, I mean, Muslim brothers are quite open, at least in their speech, uh, you know, to the fact that, you know, Copts have uh, the same rights, except to be President of the Republic, than others. In terms of Salafis, I mean, they just have no patience for Christians. This is very clear in their in their in their talks, and um, uh, therefore, there we were at high risk, definitely. Um, unification of fractions, uh, I, I cannot predict. I mean, um, um, in countries which are heavily fragmented, uh, if there is no political goal that is perceived as uh, superior to the vested interest of the fractions, it will be harsh to deliver anything. You know, and, uh, and, and the, the, the supreme interest, of course, is money. In, uh, in Iraq, as you very well know, one of the reasons why it did not work was that the Americans decided to punish the Sunnis and then uh, say, you know, okay, oil would be divided between Shias and Kurds. And uh, the the remnants of the Falul, the remnants of the uh, of the Saddam Hussein regime, would get nothing. Okay, so they blocked the whole process, and uh, did not work out. In in Libya, where everything is to is open to be rebuilt because there is nothing. I mean, the the man destroyed the country for 42 years. I mean, uh, I don't know if you have Arabic. And in Zintan, the other day in the mountains. Uh, where there are many things written on the walls, and Libya has a whole uh, a book, uh, a livre ouvert, if you wish. Um, there was a sign saying in Arabic, uh, 42 years of 
arrearation or whatever, I mean, uh, backwardness. Uh, and uh, it was just brain dead. I mean, he had destroyed everything. And um, so who is going to run the transition? This, there are b very big stakes. Are they going to think that they can, they can join together, they can join forces, or on the contrary, is it going to be an Iraqi-like situation where everyone wants to you know, get so? But um, a rogue Libyan state is totally unsustainable for northern European countries. There's no doubt about that. Iraq was an American issue, but uh, you know Libya is. Uh, can you imagine Soma Somalia and Libya? That means no uh, no shipping in, in the Mediterranean, no nothing. I mean, no. Uh, Hezbollah. Uh, the role that Hezbollah is playing in Syria is controversial. Uh, we don't have. I mean, I don't have um, inf reliable information. Some have said that. Uh, the groups which are um, which are uh, very efficient in the repression in uh, Syria now are Iranians uh, who came to uh, to Syria to uh, help the regime monitor um, the streets the street scene and like because they had experimented that in Tehran also in putting down the green revolution so-called green revolution and Hezbollahis who crossed the border into um, into um, Syria to kill uh, Sunnis. It's, this is part and parcel of what people in the Sunni camp said. It's difficult to check as of now, right? But Hezbollah is in, is in difficulty. And uh, the other impact of the Syrian crisis is on Hamas. Because, you know, the reason uh, for the, the, the deal that was concluded with the Israelis uh, of, on the Gilad Shalit, uh, the freeing of Gilad Shalit is a consequence of the loss of the Syrian grip on Hamas, because they would not allow the the deal. Right? It's the Egyptians have taken away, have taken over. Um, now, uh, the Islamic fighting group in uh, in uh, in Libya, um, well. Belhaj and a few others say that they have changed, that they are not the Islamic fighting group of, uh, of the old days, that now they're favorable to democracy and uh, what have you. Uh, it remains to be seen. I mean, he is uh, in Tripoli today, you know, Tripoli to some extent with a sort of more joyous atmosphere is reminiscent of Kabul after um, the fall of the communists, where you had all those commanders who, after a while, started to divide the city into their fiefdoms, uh, extort people, rape women, and so on and so forth. It's not yet that, but pe many people are fearful of that in Tripoli. And just like the Taliban were welcomed by the Kabul urban circles, even if they were not religious, because it was a means to get rid of the commanders, to the same token, I heard a number of people in, um, in Tripoli who were not necessarily religious who said that they thought Berhaj would, you know, get them rid of all those Arabs and Berbers from the mountains who are going to rape our daughters, right? So, this is, I mean, Libya is a tipping point for the time being. That, that, that's the limits of my expertise. Mm 
Mm. We're running right out of time. Let me just fit one more question in. The lady at the back there was the quickest uh, raising her hand. So this will be the last one because we're I'll actually be brief in my answer. Time. Hello. Can you please tell us? Use the microphone, I can't hear you. Yes. Can you uh, please tell us about the, the impact of uh, these revolutions on, on the question of Palestine, on, on Palestine and Israel, of course, especially with Israel losing um, their best Arab ally? Using their what? Losing, the, losing Egypt, the support of, of, uh, of Egypt, of Mubarak. Um. Originally, I mean, I was in, in Israel, in, uh, in Gaza, and in, uh, in Ramallah in March, and uh, attended a big conference at the Hebrew University where Israelis coming out of Egypt were enthusiastic and said, well, it's not anti-Israeli, it's nationalist, it's great. And others in the Israel establishment were much more fearful and were considering that, you know, uh, uh, the warring factions in Egypt would not reconcile over anything but hostility to Israel. Uh, it's clear that um, one of the reasons why Egypt was marginalized, so many people in Egypt believe, is that for the last 30 years, Egypt had become the gatekeeper for, uh, for Gaza therefore was unable to, to play its role in the Middle East. And uh, uh, Egypt is now going to have uh, an attitude vis-a-vis -vis Israel which is going to stress more Egyptian interests. But um, what is important for Egypt is to have access. And this is how they are going to be perceived as serious. Hence the Gilad Shalit uh, affair. In terms, of, uh, in terms of Palestine, in mid-March there was a big movement uh, which was called uh, the people wants the end of partition between Gaza and the West Bank and uh, they, it was a means for the younger generation in, in Palestine to try to say that you know both Hamas and Fatah had failed and that they needed a new uh, democratic uh, movement to, to rule both, um, uh, both parts of the Palestinian territory. It was the first time that Hamas had to suffer uh, significant uh, and vocal criticism in the streets. It has been put down since then. And uh, as of now, um, uh, I believe in, in Palestine the situation is at a standstill. Okay, I'm afraid we'll have to call it a day because we've run over time, but I'd just like to ask everyone to show their appreciation for Professor Cabell's lecture.